This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. My first guest has just filed a lawsuit against the British Columbia government in hopes of having the chance in court, in court, to prove that Sasquatches are real. Todd Standing is a Sasquatch tracker and studier who wants to force the BC government to send one of their biologists into the wilderness for at least three months to prove the existence of the creatures. It is a unique lawsuit to say the least. Todd Standing joins me now. Todd, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. Let me get the very obvious question out of the way right off the top. Uh, You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Many people, probably maybe most, don't believe in such things as Sasquatches or Bigfoot and think it's just a legend. So when you tell them what you do and they don't already know you or know who you are, what's the common reaction? What's the response you get? Um, Eye rolls, I guess. I I don't know. (laughs) Actually, actually, you know what? To be honest, a lot of people just find it very interesting and, and... if they have a five-minute conversation with me, you know, it's this is why I'm here doing this court of law because the evidence, I mean, I have PhDs. I have best-in-the-world wilderness experts out with me that, you know, are, are taking this very seriously or are, in fact, in the know that the species exists. And, uh, you know, we're, we're tired of the, the non-acknowledgement of it. The, they're out there. I can prove it. And I, I want to get this done. I want to get to some of that proof in a minute, but first of all, did you always believe, or was there something at some point that convinced you? No, no, no. I was when I was a student at the University of Alberta. I was going to go out into the ecology and prove that Sasquatch couldn't exist; that there was no ecological niche for a species like that to survive. And I started talking with Native Americans, First Nations people, eyewitnesses, and uh, before I knew it, I was in the know. I, I knew they were real. And, and from there, I went to Fish and Wildlife first with video evidence. Tell them to come out with me and I would show them a Sasquatch. I did, like, 12 years ago, that's where I started, you know? So, 12, 12 years ago, you had some sort of video or some kind of evidence? That's right. I, I, after I was convinced they were real, I went into Fish and Wildlife and I said, look at these two videos. Come out with me and I will show you a Sasquatch. Look at the evidence. I know how to track them. I understand how they've evaded us. Let's go do this. And they were like, nope, not going to happen. Sorry. So, Okay, if you have video, and I know I've seen on your website there are clips. It's not the full thing, but there are clips uh, from this. Sure. Uh, what was the reaction when you showed someone a clip that you say that you took in the wilderness? What was the reaction to it? Well, it's very interesting, you know. And and of course, uh, I mean, it's possible it could have been faked, but I'm not saying believe it. I'm saying this is. This is the stepping stone. Let's go out and look. And, and since then, I've taken eight different videos. I've taken Survivor Man out and had him live interact with Sasquatch. I took a PhD out and showed him a Sasquatch that's in the documentary. The evidence with, that I and my colleagues represent, represent is, I mean, if it's, if it's a court of law, if it's to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is necessary to, to prove someone's murdered somebody else, I mean, I've got eyewitnesses. I've got forensic DNA. I've got fingerprints that are that are being presented by experts to say this is Sasquatch. So, if you have all that, why does nobody want to listen? Why do you have to go through court? Because surely, here here's the thing that that strikes me always about this, Todd, is that if they exist, if there was a way to prove that Sasquatch, what, what's the proper plural for that, by the way, Sasquatches? Sure. That no, I, yeah, okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. Okay, so gorilla, uh, gorillas. Okay, so if they exist. 
Surely there is huge money in this for scientists, for researchers, for other people. Surely if, if there would be all kinds of people that would want to get on this bandwagon because there would be just a massive amounts of money, why is it so hard then? Is it just they don't want to look like crackpots? Why, I mean, are they, why don't they want to jump on board with you? Well, I disagree about the money. I mean, uh, I, if this has cost me a small fortune, Diane Goodall, you know, uh, uh, Jane Goodall, I should say, and Diane Fossey, I mean, they, they broke. They, you know, they, they lived, like, almost in poverty while they, they studied the primates, gorillas, and chimpanzees that are known. True. Still fighting for money for that. This not, you know, and, and a big, the biggest problem with this is people have come along and made fake TV shows. Right. Made fake documentaries. People have cried wolf so much that the legit people are out there going, well, you know, that, that TV show was totally fake and a lie. When I went on TV with Les Stroud, and he's interacting with Sasquatch, and he's like, oh, my God, tracks. And there was some group of creatures I have no explanation for. He has no explanation because it's Sasquatch. People are like, what's well, no big deal. I saw that on some monster show. But that was fake. This is real. This is Les Stroud. This is backcountry, middle of nowhere. It's not fake. So real. So how do you find them? How, I mean, because if you've seen eight, you obviously know where to look and you know how to w- w- sort of what the conditions are around where they would live. What do you look for? Well, it's, uh, I, I, I work with primatologists best in the world and I, I go and I look for a, a group or a troop of Sasquatch. And then, uh, you know, I, I do like, uh, like gorilla primatologists do. I, I start working my way in, getting them to trust me. Uh, I, I cheat a little bit by festooning them with apples. They take apples from me. And uh, I, I try to build a relationship of trust as best I can. And uh, it, it's an uphill battle, though. To go, to go study gorillas, it takes eight years before a primatologist can, can, can walk up to the group. It takes a long time to, to get them used to you. And that's the uphill. And I, I don't have, I, don't have you know, every, I can't go out every single day. I don't have funding. I do have to work. You know? So it's very hard to get that, to, to get their trust. But I have been doing that successfully in Alberta and in British Columbia, and before I did it in Washington and Montana. A few moments ago when I asked what the plural was, and one of the words you said was gorilla, do you believe that what you have seen and what you've tracked is essentially a type of gorilla? No, oh no, they're, they're bipedal, they're much more man-like than, than gorillas or even chimpanzees. On the, on the genetic scale, actually, I, I hypothesize, and it seems to be that it goes gorilla, chimpanzee, human being, and then further over to the right is where Sasquatch are. So they have less in common with gorillas and chimpanzees, and that obviously, that actually makes sense because they've, they're actually a, 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 a primate that lives in non-tropical, like it's, it's cold. It's, gorillas and chimpanzees can't live in the cold weather like we have in, uh, in North America, and this primate species that's bipedal, that's a hunter, that has so, many, so much more traits, even the outward nose, like we have, that gorillas and chimpanzees do. We're the aquatic ape, and they sit right in with us. They have far more in common with us than they do with gorillas and chimpanzees, and, and vice versa. Um, okay, now, that said, when I, if I were to go to Africa, let's say, I can go, there are such things as, you know, a gorilla tracks, treks. Uh, you can yeah. go and find them. There, people have been able even though they are an, a wild animal, they can track them and people see them. Every, every day in Africa, people go on gorilla treks and see gorillas. Why are these so difficult to find so that people, other than a very few, have never seen them? What you're saying, too, is you're saying trackers take them out, not primatologists. Indigenous trackers take people out. Without them, there'd be no study on gorillas. Diane Fossey or Jane Goodall would have never found a primate 
without the trackers. Here in North America, if you talk to the trackers, the First Nations people, they all know that Sasquatch are real. And the difference is, though, Sasquatch are hunters, and they're much more advanced primate species. Like I said, they're very human-like. But since they're trackers and, and the First Nations people, the trackers that would take us out, won't. If you go talk to the First Nations people, they have a reverence for the species. They call them the boss and, you know, the guardians of the mountain, and they have all this huge reverence for them. And in First Nations culture, all the First Nations I've dealt with, they all consider Sasquatch uh, a creature that they actually fear, and you don't follow it, and you don't, for lack of a comical term, you don't mess with Sasquatch in their culture at all because they're, they're a dangerous species to mess with. So we don't have the trackers here like, we ha- like they have in Africa. I know you've been asked this question before. I'm sure you have anyway. Uh, but why have we never found a corpse? Even if they're great at hiding, great at hunting, great at hi- disguising themselves, surely somewhere along the way one of them would have died and not necessarily died in a hidden place. They would have dropped dead. They would have had a heart attack. They, surely one of their bodies would have been exposed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Gigantopithecus is the species that, that they're the descendant of, is what my theory is. And Gigantopithecus... 250,000 years ago, we found a spot in Langchun, China, where they found Gigantopithecus bones. They were up in a cave, hidden, where you can't get to them. And science doesn't accept it as a burial site because we can't say this species was burying or even putting their dead in a high-up cave because Neanderthals didn't do that until 50,000 years ago. And so that theory is sort of being thrown around right now. But if it is Gigantopithecus and they were putting their dead in a specific place 250,000 years ago before we, we ever did, Perhaps they're still doing that. And, and the sheer numbers of them. They're very rare. They're very elusive. How many do you think there are? Uh, my, oh, my estimate is just so, it's so loose and it can be, you have to start with a number. No, my, my hypothesis is 15,000 in the entirety of North America, spread out from the skunk apes in Florida to Texas, all the way up into Alaska. And their populations are going to be much more dense through Washington, Montana, Alberta, Saskatchewan. If you look at the terrain they have to survive in, it's immense. It's, it's insane how much terrain they have. To think there's, 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 there's going to be an average of Sasquatch every, you know, 100 square kilometers. So finding a bone... And how many forensic anthropologists are looking around for... for and they Sasquatch? don't... And obviously you're describing it if one every 100 kilometers, they don't live in pairs. They, work, they live alone. No, they live in groups. They oh, do they? Groups. Yeah, small groups that defend each other and... That's why you can't go shoot one. You, if you go shoot a gorilla, you're going to have to kill the silverback and probably half the troop. Every baby gorilla that was brought back to a zoo, a troop was half or entirely annihilated for that. And we don't need that. We don't want that, especially with a rare species like this. There's no reason to do that. They identify a primate species even today without killing them. They have DNA that identifies them. It's been done with gibbon, new species of orangutan. With DNA, we can identify this species and begin the study of it ethically without having to go kill them. Again, my, my, my question about this that, that puzzles me, and maybe it puzzles you too, but we have spent, we, scientists, adventurers, paleo, whoever, all, all the people, biologists, we've spent millions of dollars exploring the deepest depths of the sea to find creatures that we didn't know exist. Uh, we have satellite dishes all over in the States and everywhere else waiting to get any kind of contact from outer space that have cost millions, and the programs cost millions and millions of dollars. Sure. Why have we not then put the same effort into this? Um, I have, well, even UFOs, I mean, that's... Gosh, UFOs, that's, there's another one. But, Loch, you know, Loch Ness like Monster, there's another one. Well, no, Loch Ness is, is different. Uh, they, they, I think they can, they, they've made that, you know, they've looked through Loch Ness. You can't look through in, in the, the depths of the terrain that we have, but I mean, they're discovering, they just discovered a new species of orangutan. 
They just discovered, it was a colleague who does Sasquatch research that discovered the giant squid, what, five years ago? And he's a paranormal researcher. I, I think the truth is, science isn't out there like you think it is. Scientists are not taking this seriously, and it's a big taboo thing. My colleague, John Bernegger, who's a wildlife PhD, has been studying this for decades. They won't even listen to him. They won't even take, they'll, they'll have none of it ev his evidence. They want to hear none of it. The man's a wildlife biologist. He's brilliant. His, ev his evidence is profound, and nobody will even talk to him about it. He's ostracized, and it's ridiculous, and that's why this court case has to come to be. Now he can testify with a dozen other individuals like him that are amazing people and have tremendous evidence. Okay, so we've got a couple minutes left here. So if, you, if this case goes to court, and I'm assuming you file a lawsuit, I'm assuming you'll get a hearing in court of some kind, uh, you, you will need to provide, as I said off the top, some kind of evidence. Now, clearly you've identified that there will be eyewitness accounts. There will be witnesses who will be called up. But as far as other things, other evidence, other discoveries you've made, what? give me two or three things. We don't have time for all of them because I'm sure you've got a lot. But what are a couple of the things that you would bring into court that you would say, here, besides the eyewitnesses, here are hard and fast pieces of evidence that prove my case? I love my video evidence. I have one video, video three, where a Sasquatch is running faster than any human being can run. When you look at the video, it's, it's, it's a bipedal, hairy, black or brown figure, and it's moving faster than a man can. Well, anybody looks at it and goes, it's clearly moving bipedally. Only humans are bipedal, correct? Correct. If it's moving faster than any man in a suit can, and it's seven foot four, and it weighs 500 pounds, how is it running faster than a human being can? To me, that's profound evidence. The Patterson film. But even I have DNA again, that comes back as, as very human-like, but yet, yet when tested against gorillas and chimpanzees, it's off the scale. It doesn't make any sense because Sasquatch are further down the right. DNA, how do you fake that? Hair samples, you know? The foot morphology of a living, organic creature. They're, I'm going to have testimony from, from uh, a fingerprint expert who's one of the best in the world that says the thermal ridges on the, on the foot of this creature are unhoaxable. The, the morphology of the foot with the mid-tarsal joint it's a living, breathing, organic creature, and it's these, this track morphology has been found all over North America. They're real. The evidence is profound. So, so we, we only have a minute left here. If, you, if things go as you hope, if you were to get this to court, and if this was to be successful in court, what do you want out of this? I mean, obviously you would like people to believe that evidence has now proven your case, but besides that, you're taking this to court for a particular reason. What is that reason? Because a biologist will then be forced to go out into the field with me, and I will show that man under the, under the, the a government agent biologist will come out with me. I'll show the man a Sasquatch like I've done over a dozen times before. He'll look at one, he'll see one, he'll see the traps, he'll see the evidence, and the study will begin and the recognition of the species will happen even in the face of the government who, had, who has denied it up until now. Todd Standing, it is, uh, it is interesting. I have no doubt you're going to get coverage on this one. This, this is going to be a good court case to cover. Uh, for people who are interested in reading more, because we, we just are out of time, uh, you have a website. What is the website if people want to look you up? Sylvanic.com. Spell that. Uh, spell that. Uh, S-Y-L-V-A-N-I-C, Sylvanic. It's a First Nations term for okay. shadow guarding the mountain. And my, my movie is called Discovering Bigfoot. Todd Standing, really interesting. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, ben, what do you think? I really do think that they're out there. Do you? I you do, are you are Fox Mulder. <laughs> you are Fox Mulder. The truth is out there. You are the you are from X Files. The truth is out there. I see. Uh, I, 
he is he is obviously passionate about this. He I believe I don't believe that he is a crackpot. I believe he has seen things. I my problem with the whole thing, my my trouble wrapping my head around it is that as uh, the question I asked, how have we other than a few people who are seemingly anyway, a few people who are Sasquatch searchers or watchers, how come more people have not come across a body. More people. It just seems. It seems so impossible. It seems so impossible. I, I, I wanted to have him on. I, I try. I wanted to make sure he was treated with respect for his ideas. He is filing a court case. It probably is going to go to court. I just have a really hard time. Innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, but in this case, because he's filing the case, he has to prove the case. So not innocent. He's got. It's it's proof beyond. Well, it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In this kind of case, it will be. Balance of probability, balance of probability. And that's maybe he can, maybe with some videos and some foot casts and some other stuff, some DNA, maybe, you know, I'm going to go to break. I would have no objection. I mean, how much could it cost? If, if we have people out there who once and for all believe I can take you to a Sasquatch, I don't believe it, but if you had someone who said, I can take you out into the wilderness. I know how to track them. I know how to find them. I know where they live. I can take someone who is an independent source, who is someone that would be, their their testimony would be irrefutable. I will take that person out there and prove that these things exist. How much could that possibly cost our government to send someone for three months? Can't be very much. You're living in the wilderness. You're not in a four-star hotel. So, uh, my thought is, while I am not someone who believes in it, sure, let someone go out for three months, give a biologist something to do for three months, and if he can't prove it, then away it goes. And if he can come up with something really fascinating, well, then there you go. What if, because this is the problem, is then people will then be looking at the government saying, you seriously spent money to go look for Yeah, a but this watch? wouldn't be a lot of money, right? It wouldn't be a lot of money. And I, to me, again, I, look, people who listen to this show know I am not in favor of willy-nilly government spending to the opposite of that, to the absolute opposite. But if you've got a biologist who's sitting, studying bones in a lab somewhere, and you can give him three months to actually spend out in the wilderness, and you're paying his salary and some, you know, some a little bit of technology, a camera, some night vision goggles, and a tent with some food, that's not going to cost you all that much. It really isn't. Or, or, you know, if you don't want to do that, I will assign you, Ben, you can go for three months, an independent observer, and see and go with him and see what you come back and what you say. I would, I would send you. I would happily send you. I would happily go. My issue is, are my credentials fit that other people would believe me? Well, there's always that. See, that's the thing. And, the, and we've reached a point now in technology where even a movie, even a video, who's going to believe a video? It can be doctored. It can be man, manhandled. It can be whatever else. So... Who, who would we send? Who's the most reliable, independent, trustworthy person that we know or that exists in North America? I don't know. Find someone. Send out Diane Sawyer into the bush. Let's see what happens. See if we can find Sasquatch. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've picked up on this. I don't know if you're aware of this. But tomorrow night at Tim Hortons Field... The Hamilton Tiger Cats play their last game of the season. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. 
Yes, that's right. Last game of the season for the Hamilton Ticats. Here to pick over the corpse like a vulture on a dead zebra or something like that. Maybe a dead Ticat. I don't know. Rick Zamprin from 900CHML, host of the fifth quarter, the world's best post-game show, any sport, anywhere. Rick, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, let me throw something out to you. I want to get your answer to this one. If I was in the stands tomorrow, and I won't be because I'll be here, I would be booing the Ticats from the opening kickoff until the moment they run off the field, and I'll tell you why. Because Jeremiah Mazzoli pointed out a week or so ago that if if they were in the playoff hunt, they would be dangerous, and I agree. They clearly have talent that they screwed this year up, they let it get away, and they didn't start playing until they were already out of it. And if I'm a fan, I find that outrageous, and I'm not giving them credit for the last half of the season when they were already done. They ruined it, and they ruined their own chance. And as a fan, they ruined my chance. Your thoughts? Wow. That, uh, <clears throat> number one, you'd probably be hoarse by halftime. Uh, but I, I think it would be very interesting to hear... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, in, incessant booing or nonstop booing. Um, <clears throat> listen, this was this is really a tale of, of two halves. You know, half number one uh, was really a write-off. I mean, zero and eight, just a putrid defense, a punchless offense, uh, a little bright spot on special teams by the name of Sergio Castillo. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, got hurt uh, four or five games ago. Into that bright spot. Yeah, and um, and you know midway through they decided to make uh, the coaching change and the QB change, and uh, you know there was a breath of fresh air, and you know a few uh, players appointed to you know just a different atmosphere, let alone a different voice. Just I think a weight was lifted off a lot of the players' shoulders. Uh, so that's saying something about you know how they felt. I think playing under Kent Austin. Well, then my uh, booze would be directed <clears throat> to Kent Austin then if he's at fault. Sure, definitely. I mean, there's there's blame to go around, whether it's the players and the coordinators and the coaches and the front office and, uh, you know, even the, the, the ticket takers. I mean, blame them too. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're off the hook. They didn't do anything wrong. I don't think. I don't think. Yeah. But no, it just, it to me, I agree with what Jeremiah Mazzoli said, and it was a week or so ago, and he made the comment that if we were in the playoffs... Mm-hmm. We'd be a frightening team to play against, and I agree 100% with him. And yeah, there have been a few changes made to the roster, certainly to the coaching, but yes, there's been a few changes made to the roster, but this roster was not, Rick, turned upside down at the halfway point. Most of the guys who are playing now were playing then, and they looked entirely disinterested. That 60-1 to game was a disgusting, although it was great for fifth quarter, but it was a disgusting performance, and I just look at this and go, you know, don't tell me now how great you could have been. You had the chance to be great, and you didn't. Yeah, and you know what? <clears throat> it's an easy comment to make because they're out of the playoffs. You don't have to back that up because you're not going to the playoff tournament. So let's, let's just say they finished in third place. <clears throat> they somehow squeaked in. The crossover is non-existent this year. Okay, that's fine. So they're in third. Let's give Toronto first place, uh, and, and we'll give Ottawa second place. The fact of the matter is they'd have to go into Toronto or they'd have to go into Ottawa, however those two teams finished. <clears throat> they, they went one and two against both those teams. And, uh, yeah. including, including during the hot period. Exactly. And, and, and especially during the hot period. A lot of those games were after Labor Day. So, you know, it, it, it's no guarantee that if they would make the playoffs, they would be the, you know, the, the, the Cinderella story and the team that started 0-8 and, and went all the way to the Grey Cup. I mean, there's really no guarantee of that. Yeah, they, they seem to be a more dangerous team offensively. They are playing better defensively. But, you know, when you look at 
the schedule from Labor Day on. <clears throat> they won their first two games under June Jones. And since then, it's been win-loss, 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 win-loss. So, I mean, it, it would be a one-and-done in the playoff scenario, as dangerous as that would be. Uh, you know, the, the comments really are toothless because they're not going to the playoffs. You, he could have come out, or any of the players could have came out and said, you know what, if we made the playoffs, we would have won the Grey Cup. Well, you know, you, you can't back that up. So it's really a meaningless comment. Well, and a lot, not all of it, because they were still barely alive when June Jones took over and in the second half of the season. But a lot of this was when it didn't really matter. And any athlete alive will tell you if you're relaxed, if you're just out there and it doesn't really matter, it is way easier to play any game. Agreed. You know what? They're 0-8. They win their first game on Labor Day against Toronto at home. And, you know, all not all the pressure's off, but a lot of the pressure is off because a lot of the talk was, you know, is this team ever going to win? Mm-hmm. Uh, will, will they win this year? But, uh, you know, they got that first win. <clears throat> they played, you know, semi-okay in that game. There was a really weird game with, you know, the lightning delay and the whole bit. But uh, a win is a win. They win again the following week. And, and a lot of that pressure really subsided. And I think a lot of the guys believe that they could go on a bit of a run now it didn't materialize that way but uh, i buy into the theory of when you're playing loose when you don't have that much pressure on you or as much as uh, you know was originally on this team in the first half of the year you're going to play a lot better because you're not thinking about all the other stuff you're just thinking about playing well executing the play in front of you and ultimately winning the ball game and ultimately to your point when they had to win when they absolutely had to win because the season was on the line how did they do well, they lost. They lost to Calgary, 28-25. Later on that night, Ottawa beat Saskatchewan on a last-second touchdown run, and uh, their season's over. Yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the club and marketing and everything else can try and spin this to say, hey, it was a great second half, and look how we turned it around, and look how good everything... This thing was a disaster and a wasted opportunity. And you're right, no guarantees of anything. But I, I as I say, I, I think Mazzoli is not totally wrong. I think they would be a team not too many teams would really love to play if they play like this, and there's no guarantee that would happen. But, all right, so tomorrow night, last game of the season. We're not going to play the Hallelujah Chorus again. We'll, we'll just play that once. We'll save it through the one time. Uh, Montreal, interesting here. Darian Durant, their starting quarterback, who has been, yeah. Is, yeah. that, is that a good definition for him this yeah. year? Yeah, I, I would go with, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now they also have Drew Willie as their backup, who's an experienced CFL quarterback. Mm-hmm. He has been listed, now it doesn't mean anything, but probably, he has been listed as your, their third string quarterback. They are going to go with two rookie quarterbacks to see what these guys can do in a CFL game to help them down the road in the future. You and I have talked about this before. This is what I think the Ticats should be doing to see what some of the guys they have can do. To me, again, missed opportunity. What's the point of not playing your guys that you haven't really seen a lot out of to this point? Yeah, you know what? The, the moment this team was officially eliminated from the playoffs, they should have you know, said, you know what? We, we have to find out who is going to be a part of this, this plan going forward. This is not a year-by-year plan. We have to figure out who is going to belong here for the next you know, three to five years. So <clears throat> they know what they have in Jeremiah Masoli. Uh, a quarterback who's who's been hot over the last month, but for the most part, his CFL career has been of an inconsistent quarterback, especially in you know the passing uh, capacity. Uh, Zach Caleros, I, I think they know what they have in Zach, a high-priced guy who's had a miserable season uh, and is looking to rebound. And, and then they have a, a, an individual by the name of Everett Golson who they really don't have any idea what he can do at this level. They know his NCAA pedigree. They, they know he was effective down there, but can he play the Canadian game? And more importantly, can he play it effectively? So the moment they lost to Calgary and they knew their season was over in terms of 
uh, you know, playing up the string and, and going into Montreal and then hosting Ottawa and then uh, hosting Montreal tomorrow night. Uh, they, they should have said, you know what, uh, veterans, we know we, we have the book on you. We know how you can play. We know your strengths and weaknesses. We know your contract situation. Uh, you know, take a seat and uh, we'll put you on the one game injured list and all these other guys who we have no idea about other than they can play some pretty good special teams. Uh, you guys are now starting. That, that should have been, uh, you know, the direction that they took. I, I understand that June Jones is compiling his resume for the front office, but, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before, that, you know, up until the point when they got eliminated, I think he proved his worth, or he, at least he proved to the front office that he can coach at this level. If they beat Montreal tomorrow by 500 points, what does that prove? Which could happen. Well, it could, uh, it actually could. There are people in the... Uh, tomorrow is fan appreciation night. Four fans are going to get to dress for the Alouettes as the offensive line. So come early, wear something with uh, you know that you can play around in. Um, no, it could happen. But let me go through a few, a few other things about this because I'm going to go through some of the free agents here that the Ticats have to make decisions on. One of them, you right. mentioned Everett Golson, their backup. We don't know if he can play quarterback at this level or not. We've missed the opportunity to see that. But you also have... And I'm going to go through them, but you got Mazzoli, you got Larry Dean, who's had a great year, Luke Tasker, Brandon Banks. You throw these guys out there for a game, a meaningless game against a disinterested Montreal team. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Banks, right now, he needs one more 100-yard game to become one, to become one of just five players with six in a row. Yeah. You have Luke Tasker, needs three catches to reach 105 to break the club record. Mm-hmm. You put these guys out there, they do these things, you're going to have to pay more for them in free agency, are you not? Right. You're actually driving up their price. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, other guys on that list, too, Ted Laurent uh, and Andy Fantuz, who's not going to play tomorrow night, but uh, guys who are going to be free agents that, uh, you know, whether they're going to pad their stats or have another, you know, game in which they break records or tie records or be among, you know, select or elite company, uh, that's only fuel to their fire to say, hey, I'm worth a little bit more than what you guys are offering. So, Let's say Brandon yeah. Banks rips off a 250-yard game tomorrow, yeah. which, again, is quite possible. What then? How much does that extra cost you? Now, you can get rid of Zach Caleros and clear some of that off the salary cap, but you've got right. Jeremiah Mazzoli, Ted Laurent, who both of those guys, well, Mazzoli's contract isn't huge, but it's going to be going up. Laurent was on a big deal. Larry Dean, who's had a terrific year. Luke mm-hmm. Tasker, who I don't know you want to get rid of Luke Tasker. Uh, Brandon Banks. Uh, I don't know at now that you want to get rid of him. Fantuz will probably be gone. Justin Capicotti and Everett Golson. If all those guys want increases, or most of them, how do you do that now? Yeah. The, the, the flip side to that is, uh, you know, if you're a player's coach, who I think June Jones is, you want to see those guys succeed because maybe they buy into the fact that, uh, you know, coach put me out there to achieve this mark. Yes, it was my talent and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that uh, led me to, uh, you know, record and register these numbers. But still, the coach put me out there in, in the last game and a meaningless game for me to, you know, to, to get this club record or, or, or whatnot. Uh, so there is that factor. But from a front office standpoint, yes, this might cost them tens of thousands of dollars in the long term. Which could also translate into a player, a free agent. Somebody you, you start to give, if it's 20000 bucks extra to every player on here, I don't know if it would be that much. Uh, there's a hundred grand. That's a player. That's a decent player in the CFL. Yeah. Well, and, and on the flip side, too, I mean, guys who don't play, who want to play tomorrow night and are going into free agency might think, uh, you know, this guy's playing. I mean, he doesn't need to play. We're already out of the playoffs. Uh, he's just playing for the numbers, could whereas be. I, I, I'm missing a game check because, you know, this guy wants to get a record. That, that, that could be, too. That could be, too. There's two ways to look at this. All right, we got uh, three minutes left. Okay. Change topic entirely. Best World Series ever? 
<sighs> no, I don't think so. I, I have a few, you know, favorites. Uh, you know, 93, uh, you, you guys were talking about this on the show a couple nights ago, you know, the 15-14 game. Oh, no, actually, it was you and Bill Kelly. Uh, yes, yes. You know, I love that game. I love that World Series, not only because it was the Jays, but because, you know, you had a walk-off homer. That's only uh, happened twice in all of baseball's uh, history. Uh, you had that 15-14 game. You had some incredible pitching performances. Paul Mahler was an absolute superstar uh, in that series. Uh, Mitch Wildthing Williams, you know, he had a character uh, you know, <laughs> uh, on, on the enemy team. Uh, but there have been some fantastic World Series. This one, uh, I just took for what it was, two teams that just did not give an inch. And when they did, the other team would come back and tie or take the lead. It was a phenomenal first six games, especially. Last night was a bit of a sour ending, but uh, I thought uh, that uh, as a whole, you know, the seven-game series was absolutely phenomenal. I'd really have to do a lot of research in terms of the best ever. I I thought last year's was tremendous, too. You know, the Indians are up three games to one on the Cubs. Chicago comes storming back, extra innings. They win their first World Series in 108 years. I mean, that doesn't happen every day. So there's a lot of contenders in that best ever. Yeah, I would look back to the 1915 World Series. I remember that one. Well, no, I have no idea what was in that one. Uh, there have been, this is the thing, is that we as a society now, and it's not necessarily, I mean, it's a bad thing, I suppose, but we have a memory, a very short memory these days, and it's because yeah. of social media and because of everything else. We don't remember what we had for breakfast. So yeah. the most recent thing is either the worst or the best, no matter what it was. That said, exactly, this was because- very, very good. Yeah, you're you're comparing basically to the to the last one or the most recent one that you recall, basically. Uh, and if you don't remember last year's World Series, you're thinking, yeah, this is the best. This is the best thing I've ever seen. Well, you, you're you're saying that because you're seeing it right now. I mean, it's happening in front of you. Whether it's you know a gargantuan home run and and you're thinking, wow, that's the best home run I've ever seen, or the, you know a breakaway goal, that's the best breakaway goal I've ever seen. It's happening now, so it's fresh in our memory and. It takes us, I think, a little bit of time to kind of digest and, and kind of reflect on what's happened in the past. Well, look, I, I'm not old enough to have remembered Bobby Thompson's shot hurt around the world. Right. So I have no way to compare whether Joe Carter's home run in the 93 World Series was better than that one. All yeah. I know is that I saw one of them and I lived one of them. And for a lot of kids, Jose Bautista's home run in Game 5 against Texas was the yep. best home run in baseball history. Yeah, exactly. Is it? Well, and- for them... Yeah, and some would say Bill Mazeroski in nineteen sixty. Absolutely, Pirates, you know, beat the Yankees, and and other was other others would point to you know the Willie Mays catch in center field at the old Polo Grounds. You know that was the best you know catch in the best World Series in nineteen fifty four. Well, uh, you know everyone has a certain memory and a certain top uh, or top three or top five or whatever it is, and for many people, especially those in Houston, this will be the best one ever. I would argue that the best World Series or the best play in baseball or whatever it is, is whatever the biggest play was when you were between the ages of 10 and about 25 for your team. Yeah, I'd probably, uh, yeah, I mean, you're full of exuberance. Uh, there's, it's there's new. Probably not, there's probably not much disappointment that goes along with that, unless your team is really bad in the first, you know, uh, dozen years of yep. that, uh, that time frame. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a good, you know, you're, you're youthful. Uh, I think you have a, a lot of memories tied to that age bracket. Uh, so, that would be, yeah, I think that would be a fair statement. But, that said, this was a really, really, really good World Series. After Game yes. 2, I fell asleep in Game 2. I went to bed, in fact. <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing <laughs> that did, again. Yeah. And, believe me, I had to put toothpicks in my eyelids in Game 5 to keep me awake. And I drifted off briefly in Game 7, but woke up in time to see the end. Um It'll be hard. It will be hard to top this one, but uh, you know what? Two years from now, three years from now, we'll be arguing. But is this the best World Series ever? Mm-hmm. You watch. You and I will be doing this again. Hopefully, not with the same lead-in of the Ticats starting zero and eight <laughs> prior to that. But we'll we shall see. We shall see. Rick Zamperin, you can catch him tomorrow night. Your last chance 
to get in on the fifth quarter this year. Whether you want to love the Ticats or take my advice and boo them, I would like, Rick, someone to come on the show tomorrow. You say, hi, it's uh, Bill. How are you? And Bill just goes, boo! <laughs> and for the whole time he's on, just boos. Wow. Anyone does that, I, I will personally, I'll be at home listening and I will be applauding for their creativity. <laughs> you, you will stand and give them the slow clap. I will. And they, they can know that at my home, I will be standing and slow clapping. In fact, I might even have them on the radio on Monday if someone wow. does that. Just, that, to, that just would, to applaud them. That would be sensational. That would. Listen for it. Tomorrow night, right after the game, 900 CHML, Rick Zamperin with the fifth quarter. Thanks for doing this, sir. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, a new poll was released today uh, done by YouGov, a group called YouGov, for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which is based in Washington, D.C. 2,300 people participated in this poll. And when you read it, uh, I got to tell you, maybe it's an age thing. I'm not sure. I'm not an old guy. I'm getting older, but I'm not an old guy. But there are some things in this that I find, and I think a lot of people will find, a little disconcerting. Maybe disconcerting is not a strong enough word. The short form of what we're going to talk about for the next little while is that one in two millennials, so the biggest growing group of the population right now who in... Well, now or soon will be comprising a large chunk of the people making decisions, politically, socially, whatever else. One in two millennials say they would rather live in a socialist or communist society than a capitalist democracy. Now, what's worse than that, if there is something worse than that? Most of those who were questioned about what they mean and who are vouching for either socialism or capitalism didn't really have any idea what those words were. They just like the sound of the, I guess, the utopianness of it all. It's a big kibbutz. We're all going to live on a big kibbutz together and share everything. I guess that's the idea. Marion Smith is the executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, the group that put this poll together and released it today. He joins me now. Uh, Mr. Smith, thanks for doing this today. Uh, thanks for having me on. You, this is the second year that you've done this, that your organization has done this. Uh, the numbers went up actually a little bit this year. Are you surprised by that? Well, I think it backs up a lot of what we were seeing uh, in some of our work on college campuses and uh, with uh, high school teachers. Um, there, there really is a failure of education on the, the question of does communism work? And, um, you know, they haven't learned the history of, you know, 40 communist regimes in the last hundred years. Um, they don't know the meaning of the Cold War. They don't understand how international communism was a threat to the United States. Um, but it sounds it sounds nice though, because everybody gets to share and everyone's equal. Sure, uh, the dream is alive and well, um, but the record is one hundred percent failure. So in every country where you know socialists got in power and uh, were able to take over the state. Uh, the economy either collapsed or turned into a totalitarian police state with the government killing their own people as a matter of policy and peacetime. And so uh, the, the record is much clearer when it comes to Marxist uh, ideology than it is even with uh, democracy. And that is, that is surely one of the most important lessons of the 20th century, which an entire generation now, and you mentioned it, millennials, uh, at least in the United States, is now uh, the largest generational cohort. Uh, this is a lesson that is completely uh, unlearned. And so, yes, they are falling for uh, the 
the, the mendacious language, um, the false hopes of a society where uh, there really is no need and no want and everything uh, works while giving the state um, all power. You said that a lot of your initial rumblings about this, I guess we'll say that, came on university campuses with the work you're doing. That surprises me, not one iota, but it also makes me wonder how have we ended up with university campuses that seem so free to disseminate this kind of thought, but if you have a dissenting voice on somehow on the other political side, you are shouted down, you're air horned down, you're not allowed to speak. It, it seems as though we have more people going to university now because it's now a thing you are supposed to do. And it seems as though if you go through that, you're getting, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear professors who presumably you trust and you respect telling you this is the way to go. Well, I, I think American um, education generally is, is sort of undergoing a crisis of identity. Uh, either college and university exist uh, to discuss and examine hard questions and look at uh, true facts from the past, or it uh, serves as a sort of coddling ground for activists. And um, this is something that I think is a, a debate uh, in American society now and, and, and in Canada and throughout the Western world. One of the uh, happy uh, findings of our poll is that uh, free speech across, you know, uh, all all opinion areas, uh, if they favored socialism or if they favored capitalism, free speech was something that they um, thought was a right, and they were opposed to limits or curtailments of it. Um, so that that was a hopeful finding in this survey, and, and I, I think that will uh, help tamp down some of the excesses that we've seen on American campuses in the last year. But rather ironic. I mean, you, you wrote a piece, I found it on your website, you wrote a piece pointing out that in pretty much every state where communism, and in some cases socialism, have come into play, free speech is one of the first things that goes away. Well, absolutely, because... Um, you know, if if you've given all the power to the government and they are justifying their use of that power by delivering goods to the people, and it comes out that things are not actually working the way they were supposed to, and you just point out failures of policy and try to change them, uh, you're not a citizen. You're a threat to the system because you're pointing out that it's not perfect. And so that reasons why we've seen in Venezuela in the last year uh, a complete crackdown on society. Uh, and and now the the murder and the torture of political uh, dissidents and and uh, political opponents of Nicolas Maduro and this most recent socialist country in the world and um, so I mean another finding of our survey you know those you know who Nicolas Maduro is don't happening in Venezuela. And so uh, very much live in a, in a dreamy um, world when it comes to their political future uh, without knowing the consequences of those ideas every single time they're tried. But, but the answer would be, but this, they just haven't done it right. It's a good concept. They just haven't done it the right way. And we could do it again and do it the right way because we could do socialism with free speech and we could do some of these things. Th that would always be the answer, wouldn't it? Yes, Venezuela is a mess, but they made mistakes. We could do it better. Yeah, that that is often the refrain from uh, from people who who don't want to be held responsible for their ideology. Um, but Mark, Marxism Leninism denies fundamental truths about human nature, and therefore cannot be a system in which humans flourish. 
And it is no accident that Marx and Engels in their journal uh, in the uh, late uh, 19th century were the first political philosophers to make an intellectual case for political genocide. And um, that is, you know, uh, in their interpretation of history marching forward, uh, some populations were just going to be a little bit too far behind, um, you know, the, the force of history, and they would, in their words, perish in the revolutionary holocaust, end quote. And for them, that was fine. That was, um, as would be said by a Soviet leader later, you can't make um, an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And so human life, the sanctity of the individual, and therefore all the human rights that didn't go along with that, are not only not respected by every um, socialist and communist state, they're actually a fundamental threat to the authority of the state and ultimately the party. So if so many people are getting this, it seems anyway, getting this ideology on university campuses and while around people who have been to university and now are carrying it forward, what? and we know that they've been failures, and we know there have been tens of hundreds of millions of people killed in communist regimes and some socialist regimes. regimes. How is this being presented then? What pr- Professors presumably are intelligent people. They understand, presumably, history. How do they present this, leave out the bad parts, and sell it that people are willing to buy? Well, I mean, what the average student in the United States will experience is a withering critique uh, of uh, the United States and its history of the Western world. Um, it is a catalog of uh, abuses against uh, uh, various peoples, uh, to history of slavery, uh, to history of, um, you know, denigrating the rights of women and uh, other uh, minority groups uh, in the country. Um, and that's what it's focused on. And so, I mean, that's why you, you get, um, as we found in our poll last year, that uh, one-third of millennials thought that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. Um, the only way you can get such a, 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 a wacky, uh, view of history, which largely shapes your worldview and, and gives you a sense of the political future you want, is because uh, education in terms of history, civics, has utterly failed in helping students to understand uh, what we have as a country, uh, a, a democratic system where the rule of law and individual rights are respected, and this system has delivered more uh, prosperity, more equality, more freedom, more prosperity to more people than any other uh, system in human history. And so they're willing, since they don't know that history, they're willing to throw that away and try for that thing Che Guevara was fighting for, um, or that thing that uh, Bernie Sanders says we should do, uh, or Jeremy Corbyn, uh, or others. And so, you know, the false hopes of a society that is just simply never going to exist. Uh, utopia doesn't exist on this earth. Um, but if they're going to go in that direction, then, of course, if they've, if they've chosen that as the hammer with which to beat uh, the United States and, and the Western uh, capitalist democracies, uh, then they're going to uh, you know, turn a blind eye to the excesses uh, of communist regimes around the world once they're finally... Uh, confronted with those truths. I think all of that's only true for the true believers. I think most millennials um, just about human rights. They care about justice and equality. 
And once they realize the record of Western uh, free market uh, democracies is so much uh, better than every communist and socialist regime, uh, I have a, a strong confidence that they will uh, reject Marxism, embrace the classical liberal uh, and democratic values that uh, have given us uh, the good lives that we're enjoying. You, you know, you bring up an interesting name. You bring up Che Guevara, and it's a really interesting name in pop culture, in millennial, the millennial world, because we've all seen the people wearing the Che Guevara shirts. He's become a pop culture icon. It's kind of cool to wear his shirt. I would bet you that 99% of the people wearing those shirts have no idea what he was about or what he did, just that I've seen someone else wear it and it looks kind of cool. What did Che Guevara, as a history lesson, what did he do to his people? Well, I mean, he participated with Fidel Castro in the violent revolution of 1959 in Cuba. Uh, he was responsible personally for the execution of, uh, you know, at least dozens, probably many hundreds of political uh, opponents, people he didn't like. We also know that he killed black people in Cuba because they were black. He was racist. Uh, he killed gay people in uh, Cuba because they were gay. He was a homophobic. So the idea that people who care about quote-unquote social justice would embrace the legacy and the ideas of Che Guevara uh, is a complete farce. And yes, I, I have to think that it is because they um, mostly do not know uh, the basic facts. And again, that would be a failure, a fundamental failure to this generation uh, by their teachers. Well, by their teachers, and I, and I would argue by some... I mean, look, Bernie Sanders was a an engaging, um, some would say cute kind of candidate who had some ideas about sharing the wealth. It was a very... For a lot of people who have struggled to find jobs or to live up to the expectations they had coming out of university, those were a lot of things that sounded really great. What I always find interesting whenever people talk about these things is, as you just mentioned, they kind of leave out part of the equation. It's all the good stuff. We never hear the bad stuff about this. Well, I mean, the foundation that I lead, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, uh, is bipartisan. We enjoy a congressional authorizing act from 1993 to educate Americans about the history and memorialize the victims of communist regimes. Um, so, you know, we're an equal uh, opportunity critic uh, if you're going to misrepresent facts about the history of communism. And so in the last 12 months, we have had uh, call-out uh, folks like Republican Senator uh, uh, Jeff Flake um, for uh, touting and, and sort of spreading uh, Cuban propaganda about the reality of life in the, in, in, in today in, in Cuba, which has not changed. And in this past year, 10,000 Cubans arrested um, you know, for political reasons and torture and, and assassinations continue. But of course, we have also had to call out America's most uh, popular politician, according to a recent poll, and that is Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders comes with his own baggage. Uh, he honeymooned in the Soviet Union. He had a USSR uh, flag hanging in his office when he was mayor in, in Vermont. And for years in Congress, he represented what he called the quote-unquote, independent foreign policy with the Soviet Union, with Nicaragua, with Cuba. 
And when Hugo Chavez came to power uh, in 1999 in Venezuela, he praised the Venezuelan uh, experiment. Uh, he has not since apologized for um, defending those regimes. He hasn't recognized and uh, mourned the victims, uh, the, the human cost of these yet again failed experiments in Marxism. And so the idea that he would be for a young a cohort of American voters, the future politically, is new, number one, it's new in American society. This hasn't happened before. And two, it's very uh, concerning. It's, it's very concerning that, um, you know, the United, the United States is the place that spent the blood and the treasure to confront international communism. And if the U.S. is going to give up that role, uh, who's going to do it? Yeah. One in five people alive today live in a single-party communist state. That's mostly China, but it's also North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, and, and Cuba. And um, what we see in Hong Kong, uh, Crimea, Ukraine, and now Venezuela, um, the ideas of liberalism and democracy and human rights are in retreat. It's the ideas of collectivism and statism that still appeal to Marxist claims of justice that are on the march. I would love to have an honest, no pressure on the voters poll in those places to see what they would pick, which you'll never have, but that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Um, just before we go, because I only have a second left here, do you believe, uh, we talk, we're talking about millennials, and for those who are still not really sure what a millennial is, the definition is born between 1982 and 2002, so 15 to 35 years old right now, roughly. Do you believe if they are holding, if a number of them, if a great number are holding these views and they are the future of the people who will be the leaders and the voters and everything else, are their views changeable? Or is there a concern here that these are locked in and we're heading down a dangerous path? Well, I, I think uh, it's a fact that um, all political parties up until this point uh, in, in the United States have been anti-communist and that the greatest anti-communist presidents were Harry Truman, a Democrat, JFK, a Democrat, Ronald Reagan, Republican. Um, and so this has never been a partisan issue before. The fact that um, there may be uh, in, you know, in a, in, a, in a few months or a couple of years, um, a political divide, meaning a partisan divide between the ideas of communism and socialism, being represented by one of America's major parties. Um, that's completely new, and it's existential to the future of the American Republic um, that these uh, lies uh, be uncovered and that people be forced, uh, if they're going to talk about socialism and communism and Marxism, they should be held to account by the media, public uh, you know, um, figures and citizens. You must account for... Um, the record of communist regimes around the world. Uh, it's the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution next week. Uh, more than 100 million people killed by communist regimes since then. So don't talk to us about socialism and communism if you're not prepared to be held accountable uh, for the consequences of those ideas uh, over the last 100 years. Marion Smith, the executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in Washington, D.C. Really, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. That is, um, you know what, there, I, there may be people listening right now. I assume there are. Everyone has different political views. There may be people listening saying, 
he just completely misinterpreted and misconstrued what communism and socialism are about. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so at all. And when I look at the numbers and all these young people who have somehow been convinced that this is a better way, that this is a better way, remembering that what happens in, go through history, go through history and look at basically every single regime, all these people believe wholeheartedly that free speech should remain a tenet of our society, no matter what kind of system we're living in. That's a millennials have a higher percentage of believing you should be having a right to have free speech regardless of what you say. Higher than any other cohort, millennials, 71% say, no matter what you say, you should be allowed to say it. No other group, age group, believes it that strongly. And yet every regime, pretty much, every communist one and many socialist regimes, first thing they do when they come in is take away that right. You can't, what I don't understand and why I wanted to have him on, you can't really have this discussion, I don't think, with people who don't really know what the definition of the words are that they are discussing. Hey, I'm a socialist. Okay, what does that mean? I get free stuff. Everybody gets the same. The rich guys have to pay way more taxes and we all live together the same. No, that's not exactly what it means. That's not what it means. That's a nice utopian idea that Bernie Sanders and a few others have put out there and some professors. That's not what it means. There's way more to it than that. And that's why I wanted to have him on because this poll really shocked me today. Nearly one in two millennials think we'd be better off with a socialist or communist regime. And remember, they are now the biggest cohort. There are more millennials than any other age group in our society and as they're getting older, they will wield more and more power and have stronger and stronger votes. Makes me a little concerned. I got to be honest. It really does. I'm hoping that somehow, if nothing else, they can at least learn what these things mean. Then if you want to be a socialist and a communist, whatever. But at least you got to tell me, what do, those ter- what do those words mean? If you then, you know all the facts and you still want to be that, well, I think you're nuts, but knock yourself out. But I think the numbers would go way, 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 way down. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.